275 pod. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Upset episode 275 is recorded live March 3rd, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. We're joining me this week. We have Mac, the dive venture. How you doing today, Mac? Doing very well. Keeping warm. It's a good thing to do. We, we're back into the weather. We probably should have at the end of February, beginning of March, a little bit of snow coming down. Uh, it, we're in those days where you never know if it's going to be 60 degrees or 30 degrees, and that's Fahrenheit. For <laughs> if, if it was Celsius, we'd really have a swing. Oh, yeah. But it's not, not too bad. And I was just thinking today that I would like to get a dive out in Lake Michigan. What do you think the chances of that happening in the next couple of weeks? Possible. We can find somebody with an outboard. I think we need to bug Bob. He's not in an outage, is he? I'm not sure what he's doing right now. I know they got one coming up. Uh-oh. Well, man, that, that means we need to get him motivated to get to get out in the lake before that happens. <laughs> yeah. Because if it's not that, I think uh, Jim Schultz may have a tiny Zodiac that we could get out in, but I don't know if that would be. It'd be if, with, with one that small, you'd want to have two. <laughs> a spare. Well, I reckon Kevin's been... Chomping at the bit to get in the big lake, so. Oh yeah, that's I'd right. Be. Yeah, that's he's he's got an outboard, so that's another one. Yeah, we could maybe bug Kevin. Because I'm I'm thinking, I don't know. Do you think the visibility pretty decent? Well, the river's not been too bad. Uh, I was hoping somebody would say something about diving this weekend. I know there's not going to be a nice dive. No, <laughs> I don't think we've got many bodies of water without going a couple hours north that are going to have ice on it. Correct. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the news. We have a few articles. Uh, first one up is caffeine. Caffeine. A little, uh, just mixing up drugs here. Cocaine trafficking scuba diver gets prison time. This one's out of San Diego. Scuba diver tried to smuggle $1.77 million worth of cocaine in the United States in a canal near uh, Calexico. Was sentenced Monday to four years and six months in custody. Avalo Padella Zepeda of Mexicali, pled guilty in San Diego Federal Court last year to one count of possession of drugs with intent to distribute. He is a citizen of Honduras. He was arrested April 25th after Border Patrol agents spotted suspicious activity near the All-American Canal, about seven miles east of the Calexico port of entry, according to court documents. Agents found him in a soaking wetsuit and located scuba gear and 55 pounds of cocaine in 25 shrink-wrapped packages, authorities said the scuba tank Used technology at circulated divers exhaled air to prevent bubbles from giving away his position. We would know that as a rebreather, which means that he wasn't a scuba diver. And neither was the person who wrote this. <laughs> border Patrol authorities said there were other men who fled back across the border. Imagine that. After investigation led agents to discover an underwater tunnel that started home in Mexicali the, and then exited into the canal. The entrance of the tunnel was covered by rocks. Dry part of the tunnel included a rail system. He told investigators his part of $700 to help transport three people from one side of the canal to the other and was given a wetsuit to wear, according to complainant. He jumped in the international boundary fence, found the waiting scuba gear, and then told he'd be transporting packages instead. 
He said he was directed to take the packages from the canal to the bridge and leave them there. He did the job, he said, because there's no other options according to the complaint. Yeah, I'd like to know what did they mean there was no other option? And $700, I wonder if he knew he had a $1.7 million off. Yeah, I don't know if he knew he had that much money. Sometimes they say there's no other options, but it's always convenient, you know, as, as a past in law enforcement. People always have a story that makes it sound like they, they were completely innocent. Somebody else made them do it, and circumstances beyond their control. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting. He wasn't Mexican, and quite often people from Honduras are coming through Mexico. They mm-hmm. get temporary visas long enough to cross over the border into America. Right. So I don't know. It's $700, huh? Yeah. Not a lot of money. Not for five and a half years worth. Yeah, he's going to spend some time, and then they'll deport him back. As well they should. I wonder if they'll deport him back to Mexico or to Honduras. I think they tend to put him, send him back to the country of origin, since they figured out where he's from. And then the arena. Well, by the way, you know, this is a follow-up that we already covered this. Yeah, yeah, all, all these in the beginning of the show. I try, that's where I try to pack the follow-up. So that one was, people who listen to the show regularly may remember the story about the scuba diver smuggling drugs. Yeah, I liked it though, because this came back to tell you how much drugs, and as soon as they started saying rebreathers, because that's what they meant, mm-hmm. how would he know how to use a rebreather? You know well, what I'm saying? To me, this, the, the most dangerous part of a rebreather is in the shallow depths. So it's odd that he'd be given this, just breathe and go. It, it sounds a little fishy, but again, five and a half years, you'll have to figure out a better story. Yeah. Well, that's quite an investment for them to have a rebreather. I would think that they would have this. It doesn't doesn't add up unless they just buy a bunch of rebreathers and think they can, you know, if they lose a few, they're okay. Yeah, they're not the ones using it. They're giving it to somebody who doesn't know how to use it. Yeah, but even if you didn't care about the guy's life or the value of the rebreather, Almost $2 million in drugs, you'd think you'd want to make sure it had a good chance of making it across. Well, at least the body. Yeah. So this one's out of New Zealand. We've covered this one many times over the years, and it's hard to believe how long it's been. There's a arena dis- decision, and they said it leaves the toxic shipwreck in her backyard. Uh, this is uh, scoop.co.new Zealand. Uh, this is from Clayton Mitchell, a spokesperson, spokesperson for sports and recreation. New Zealand has been left with a toxic shipwreck that today's decision will allow foreign owners to walk away from the arena mess uh, on uh, was Astrolab Reef in the Bay of Plenty. They have bribed their way out of taking responsibility for the ship, which they ran aground with some iwi accepting 750000 to keep quiet. This is uh, says New Zealand First MP Clayton Mitchell, who lives in uh, Turunga. The Bay of Plenty Regional Council said today the application by representatives of the owners to leave the ship was complex. However, there appears to be little concern for the environment in this decision, allowing the owners to leave without a care after fouling our backyard. Complete removal of the container ship is what New Zealand first called for, and no half-hearted approach to cleanup should be accepted. Why are New Zealanders now paying the price for the owners could not care less attitude? Presumably, we think there is some far-flung corner of the globe that doesn't matter. Well, it does us. We live here. The councils now send a signal to the international maritime community that New Zealand is a pushover in a country where lower standards are okay. And then I left up a little bit. We talked about the panel released 450-page document which outlines the conditions for monitoring the wreck. The salvage to date has cost more than $500 million. The crews have recovered 1,107 containers, and they have removed a uh, 1,467 cubic meters, meters 
of oil from the wreck. Interesting. Tell if you got off pretty cheap, didn't you? <laughs> Five hundred million dollars. You wonder how much insurance did they did they have enough insurance to cover that? Did you ever see a picture of the ship? Uh, we have uh, over the over the years seen. I'm different just pictures. looking at this from here. It's, it's container ship filled mm-hmm. to the rim with with uh, containers, and and the picture here it's either run aground or it's listing really bad. Yeah, the the photo I've seen a lot is it's listing with some containers have already fallen off the side. Yeah. But it was five years ago. That's how long we've been talking about this. Yeah. And like they say, the, the comment section on this one here is, why do blazes, do we, you know, does it cost the people in New Zealand when it wasn't their fault? Well, has New Zealand paid for this? Well, according to what it says here, are those not responsible to be held financially accountable? Yeah, they said the shipping company involved, Diana Shipping Limited, has forked out over $500 million in Captain Mario uh, Balomaga. B-A-L-O-M-A-G-A, the navigation officer, Leon Relland, were sent to prison for their part in the calamity. Uh, I'm reading this from another article. This one seems to take the other side of the last one, and it's the call and opinion. It says, it seems the sad remain the container ship are not to be left in peace in her grave on the Astrolab Reef. Commission have found the potential risk environment posed by the remaining oil and bow sections was negligible. Within hours of that decision, at least one group involved in the aftermath of the wreck has signaled intention to appeal the matter to the environmental court and so prolong the agony expense even further. Hello. I thought I lost you there. You did. It's a super high-speed Internet that I've got. (laughs) Came back on real quick. Still recording? I have no way of knowing Let's try. I'm going to do a stop. Because like I said, you want to make sure. Okay. That's recording. So I went to your second one on this, too, where mm-hmm. it said Eve yep. her to her grave. Is that what you're going to do next? Yes. Okay. That looks good. Yeah. And I, and I before we got cut off, I was talking about the you know, 380,000 ton grounded. The sea has broken her back and became yet another New Zealand shipwreck. It says, apart from retrospective retribution, there seems to be little to be gained by now requiring the owners to remove every last vestige of the wreck. Any damage caused the marine and foreshore environment has already occurred, and the natural healing process is well advanced. Part of the process is absorb the remain of the ship into the reef, where it will become much as much part of the environment as the considerable history of shipwreck. Most of the hundred ships that have met their ends on our long, dangerous coastline have left something of themselves behind to be encrusted with barnacles and seaweeds colonized by fish and eventually succumb to natural processes of nature. Most notably in the recent times, been a loss of the Russian cruise liner Mikhail uh, was it Lermatov in nineteen eighty six, while most of the oil and fuel was taken off the ship at great cost, a twenty two thousand ton ship was left on the seafloor where it where she has collapsed into a moldering corpse to provide home to sea creatures and object of curiosity to divers. The remains of the arena should be left to a similar fate. In spite of the initial damages she caused, not discounting the commendable effort of 8,000 volunteers professionals, the damage is not insignificant. An estimated 350 tons of oil, 1,700 tons on the ship leaked into the sea and washed on the nearby beaches, killing about 2,000 seabirds and inflicting serious damage to selfish beds, the entire marine environment with a considerable radius of the shipwreck. Cargo, the descriptions littered the sea and beaches with cleanup work, months and hard and very expensive work. 
Local people are understandably and justifiably angry that poor seamanship has caused so much damage to the reef and surrounding seas where they will go fishing in the beaches they enjoy the summer. They rightly expect those who pilot large ships in our inshore waters to exercise the duty of care with the highest degree of professional skill and the best possible navigation aids and equipment. The master and his senior officer failed that duty, but perhaps not alone that failure. There were concerns expressed about the safety of the ship before it left Australia on that fateful voyage. Voyage, and Those concerns were repeated in Bluff before she sailed for East Coast's ports of the North Island. There were several opportunities of ship to have been detained by port in New Zealand maritime authorities and uh, remedial actions taken, they also failed. Attempting to remove what is left of the arena will do middle, little more than disrupt the healing process and cause more unnecessary damage to the reef. That's kind of my thought on it is that I would have just said, you know, get the as much of the hazardous stuff off and leave the rest. And it just makes, you know, it's like depending on which side of the fence you're on. One, it's the remains. The other one is toxic waste. So which is it? It doesn't sound like toxic waste dump. No, it's what it is. Is that somebody wants to make it so expensive, and then they're the same people who be going into their local grocery stores and complaining why certain items are so expensive. It doesn't matter that you don't like that shipping company. In the end, they just pass the cost on. Well, we talked about shipping costs before. Remember how much China charges for their boats to be used to go from here or from California to China, and how much we charge a boat just to go from here to Hawaii. Right. That's like there's something seriously wrong there, people. Yeah, it it all comes down to money and costs, and in this case, insurance. So they're going to pay more for insurance. They're going to pass the costs on. Other, I'm sure other companies who did nothing wrong, who are also shipping, are going to be passing those costs on. So there's no sense. I mean, if you want to do a fine, that's one thing, but just don't add cost on for the sake of adding costs. It's, it, I don't think it's benefiting anybody other than maybe some people in a salvage job. And then we have a follow-up for the missing MH370, the uh, Boeing 777 that's been missing. Uh, a part was recovered. Debris from the Malaysian Airlines flight has been found off Mozambique on a sandbank in the Mozambique Channel, body of water between Mozambique and Eastern Africa and Madagascar. The object had the words, no step on it. It could be from the plane's horizontal stabilizer. And what they're saying is that there's only one 777 known to be missing. So even though they haven't confirmed that this is from that plane, it kind of comes down to well, where else could it be from? Now, they, they gave the credit to, uh, let's see, who who they do they say in this article? I saw another article where they had a guy who they said found it, but he really didn't find it. He was out looking just as just as part of walking the beach, and uh, his the captain who had brought him there actually called him over to take a look at this object. So it's kind of like my opinion on... Uh, climbing Mount Everest, you've always got the Sherpas yeah. who, who get up the mountain before you do, but you get all the credit. It's kind of the same thing with the parts. You know, the captain of the boat and the guy who actually found it and pointed it out, he didn't find it. It was the guy who chartered the boat who got the credit. But, hey, maybe it's good business practice. Well, if you said the guy that eyeballed it, that's like if I take a treasure cruise out, I'm the captain of the boat, I'm taking to the place, I believe you're going to find it, and you find it, but it's my treasure. Yeah. Well, Is that okay? Yeah. Of course it is. It's my money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not taking your bait. I'm curious to see how they're going to triangulate the uh, location of the parts with the currents to see if that's worthy to do another scan in that area. Well, they they said that where they found it was about what they predicted, where they would be. They would wash up if they were floating. 
Uh, this particular piece didn't have any barnacles remaining on it, but they're saying that's probably because it was found in the sandwich men that was essentially sandblasted uh, on the shore. I really would like them to find that. It would be nice, and I think they really want to find it because there's some, you know, why did it come down? Uh, do you remember, Do you recall how deep the water is in that area? I'm looking at the chart, but I don't remember how deep they said that was there. Where, where they found the piece, I don't know, but there were some spots where they were looking. It was thousands of feet down. Well, I remember the one that they covered and found that ship. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to look at that and see how deep it was when they found the that ship. But looking at this, this is uh, it looked like a, it was a fiberglass finish, and then it had like an aluminum honeycomb structure. So some interesting photos. I'm sure we're going to hear more about it, and hopefully they'll uh, renew efforts in certain areas. Uh, see if I can find something. Yes. And here we have a Florida man who smeared a boat with blood and abandoned it at sea. The man used his own blood. He rented a boat, smeared it with his blood left at the sea, and he's facing federal charges for communication of a false distress. Richard Orn, a former financial advisor from Boca Rotan, Florida, been accused of forging customer signatures and charging file information in order to withdraw money totaling 15000 from accounts of elderly clients. He's put under investigation by the Federal Industry Regulatory Authority in response to a complaint on April 1st, in April, on, yeah, April 1st 2015, which also happens to be April Fool's Day. A boat that Orn had rented was found smeared with his blood and contained his wallet and car keys. The motor was running and Orn was nowhere to be seen. Orn's father expressed confusion at the time, saying he's a strong swimmer and a certified scuba diver. Suspicions were aroused when it was reported that Orn had asked a marine repair shop to fix an 8-horsepower outboard motor in case the fishing motor failed. He also reportedly purchased an inflatable boat prior to his disappearance. On April 12th, Orrin called the police himself and admitted to orchestrating the hoax in order to escape legal issues. He said that he hoped to start a new life. Orrin How's is not... That out? How's that working out? <laughs> well, he's got a new life. He's also got a friend named Bubba. <laughs> Orrin is now facing federal charges and communication of false distress as well as being responsible for the repayment of search costs totaling $400,000. And he's... according to that, he only stole fifteen. Well, that's all that he had been charged with. I'm betting that when it all came out there was a little bit more uh, and he was probably afraid of some sort of fraud charge but now he gets a fraud charge and a big fraud charge he's so I wonder why he called him because it sounded like he could have got away with it maybe he had been in talk with his family or maybe he just kind of thought better of it yeah he thought better of it him and Bubba yeah <laughs> I don't know if you faked it got away with it man why would you not keep it up and start that new life well who knows? Maybe we'll have a follow-up down the road. Yeah, maybe he'll come out and tell us why. I like this last, this next one coming up for this, you. This one is from RT.com, which RT stands for Russia Today. It is the propaganda publication for the Russian government. So you always have to take it with a little bit of a uh, little grain of salt. Uh, many times what they're reporting is true, but the only reason they bring it out is they're trying to embarrass the United States. So in this particular one. Not hard to do. No, I mean, we, we, we do it pretty well ourselves. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this one is uh, covering the CIA tried to kill Castro. And what's unique and why we're covering it is they wanted to lace his diving suit with tuberculosis. The CIA reportedly came up with the outlandish plot to kill the former leader, Fidel Castro. United States Security Archive published information that Washington tried to give Castro a diving suit 
contaminated with tuberculosis. The National Security Archive alleges the U.S. government contacted the lawyer James Donovan to conduct secret negotiations with Castro. Given Donovan's connection to the Cuban leader, the CIA believed they could use this to her advantage and try to assassinate Castro. At some point during Donovan's negotiation with Castro, several officials in the covert operations division devised a plan to have Donovan be the unwitting purveyor of a, of a diving suit and breathing apparatus respectively contaminated with, uh, was that, Madura, foot fungus, and tuberculosis bacteria, a gift for Castro, a passage from the National Security Archive revealed. However, the plan was ultimately shelved after Donovan's handler, Milan uh, Miskovsky, a CIA lawyer, told him to make sure the diving suit he managed to attain for Castro was not tampered with by the CIA. Donovan met with Castro in 1963 during one of those meetings, handed over the diving suit and a watch as a gift. The diving suit was chosen because both Donovan and Castro enjoyed diving. However, the suit was not contaminated following the tip. Donovan was a central figure in the movie Bridge of Spies, which is probably why it's in, in here. They probably paid to, to have it inserted if we're going to go complete conspiracy. Uh, during the film, he tries to negotiate the exchange of captured U-2 pilot for Soviet intelligent agent Rudolf Abel. Another plot that the CIA had reportedly tried was uh, to use Cuban leaders' love of strawberry milkshakes and try to kill him. Uh, there was also the exploding cigar, and uh, let's see, was, I think there was in, in 2000, the Miami exiles planned to blow up an auditorium in Panama where Castro was scheduled to give a speech. I don't know, do you remember the, what was it, one of the years where they had the Olympics in, the, in Spain? Uh, one of the dirty tricks that was done was they, uh, as because Castro went over to watch the Cuban baseball team play, and just before the game, they leaked information that there was a coup going on in Cuba, so he immediately flew back. <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that. So I, I wouldn't put it past the CIA on this. But sometimes you wonder, were they really credible, or is it just kind of like the game of the week? If you're in the CIA, do you, you know, you're, you know, have you come up with another way to kill Castro yet? Here, <laughs> let, 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 let's, let's, let's do this one. And then you conveniently leak some of them out just to, to keep thing, you know, things unstable. Let's see. Now we're going to test this Internet connection out even more because I've, I've gone through my preloaded articles. I just did mine as we did them just in case. So this next one is fish poachers push Mexico's endangered porpoises to the brink of extinction. China's lucrative black market for fish parts is threatening the Flaquita? the world's most endangered marine mammal. The porpoises who live only in the Gulf of California are getting caught up as bycatch in illegal gillnets and killed. In 2013, Song Shen the 75-year-old resident of Calexico, California, was attempting to re-enter the United States from Mexico when Border Patrol noticed a strange lump in the floor mats of his Dodge attitude. But it's a terrible name of a vehicle. The plastic bags beneath the mat contain not cocaine but another valuable product, 27 swim bladders from Tutuoba, a critically endangered fish whose air bladders, a Chinese delicacy with alleged medicinal value, fetch up to $20,000 a piece. Agents tracked Zen to his house where they discovered a makeshift factory containing 214 bladders. Altogether, Zen's contraband is worth an estimated $3.6 million. Wow. A I wonder when they say tracked him to his house, does that mean they, t- they said, where do you live? And I and they they go there. Well, see, tracked means that you actually did some work, other than reading it off your driver's license, maybe. 
I mean, he was a resident in California. I wonder if that was legal resident or not. I, who knows? <laughs> yeah, he's a 75-year-old resident of Calexico, California, Song Zhen Zhen. Um, yeah, I'm, who knows? I'm going by the name, which could be stereotyping. Uh, I'm guessing he was somehow affiliated with China, and I think I would win that bet. Since 1970, uh, since 1979, 97, 80% of the world's uh, faquilas have perished as bycatch, many in gill nets operated by legal tutuba fishermen. Today, fewer than 100 remain, earning a dubious title, the world's most endangered marine mammal. Scientists fear the porpoise could vanish by 2018. The possible extinction is the most important issue facing the marine mammal community right now. This is according to Barbara Taylor, a conservation biologist of the U.S. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, out of the Southwest Fishery Science Center. The name means little cow in Spanish and is a creature of superlatives. Not only is it the most in peril secession, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that. I think some of those letters are silent and some aren't. It's also small, at less than five feet long from snout to tail, the most geographically restricted. Its entire range could fit four times within Los Angeles city limits. Prominent black patches ring its eyes, trace its lips, giving it a charma panda-like appearance. I was looking at that, and it didn't. I would not have thought that as being a, you know, a. Uh, well, that's a terrible photo that they put in the article. It's like of all the photos you could find, the only one you can do makes it look like a fish. I mean, it, it doesn't look like a porpoise. No, because they're they're showing you just a little bit. It's all out of context. They're showing you an eyeball and some lips. I mean, big lips. But I mean, not that I think that any animal should go extinct. But when you're territory that you can even exist in is that small how long has that really been a species one would think you could make that area off limits so they could at least reproduce and right if it's if it's that much of a problem you just need to say you know what we don't fish here yeah it's especially if that i mean you you know where they live it's what four los angeleses that's not that big of area they said the mexican government has also spent million dollars compensating fishermen to switch to safe gear, which won't get the fish, or quit fishing altogether. Uh, the Mexican government in 93 took action designating a gillnet-free biosphere reserve in the area where the the Colorado River once flowed in the Gulf. The reserve was far from perfect. It was rife with illegal fishing and enforcement with lax. Well, that's your problem. I'm sending you a picture of what the darn fish looks like. It looks like a fish. Well, if you go farther down the article, they have one where it's a little bit more porpoise-looking. Okay, I'm looking at the one from the Smithsonian, and that doesn't even look like the same picture. No, it doesn't. Oh, well, th- that's the fish bladders there. That's the... Well, the, the, even these then are 5,000 in the United States, right. 10,000 in Asia. Well, see, that's what they're trying to catch. See, that they, guy they're, there. they're not even going after the dolphin. The dolphin is bycatch. Wow. They're going after these fish because of the bladder, and they're getting the dolphin. Well, you know, those fish alone are 220 pounds, six and a half feet long. They're as big as the dolphin. Oh, or bigger. yeah. Wow. I'm in the wrong business. Yeah. They said six and a half feet long, 220 pounds. Yeah. That's a good article you found there. Uh, it's real similar to what we had here. But if they're really that restricted to that area, you're, you know, it's like that's off limits. Yeah. Or you can use a line and a, you know, a bobbin and a worm on a hook. The smuggler was hit with a hundred and twenty thousand five hundred dollar fine. That's that's 
reason, that's too good. It's nothing compared to the millions he's got. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's you can make all that money. It's like, okay, here you go. That's interesting. Yep, Mexican fishermen get away with fines as low as five hundred dollars. Well, if I could make ten thousand or twenty thousand, I'll pay the fine. Right. Yeah, Why you've, would you've, you've done nothing to discourage that practice? No. Amazing. And we wonder why we got problems. And then this one is the from the Daily Historian. I'm not sure even where this is. Another case of do we know what? Clat stop community college. <laughs> it's like every what country. What country are we in? I don't know. <laughs> uh, My goodness. Let's maybe do. Should we? They've got obituaries. I don't know. Is that going to help? Are they going to? Well, this said Oregon kids now need a license to hunt. I think that's something different. I hope it is. Well, let, me, let me look at home delivery. <laughs> See if they'll maybe tell me where. Okay. It says you get the monthly Coast River Business Journal and one business journal that focuses exclusively on the Columbia Pacific region. I'm, I'm still Oregon. Not... Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Yeah, I was going to have to look up. There wasn't, it is in the U.S. because it was a 503 area code. <laughs> So I was going to have to backtrack it that way. It's like a, oh. I, I guess they don't picture people just Googling it and coming up. But the article is talking about dive robots. Students are using technology to find shipwrecks. The Clatsop County top student robot builders are preparing to dive under the sea in search of shipwrecks. A select group of top student robot builders assembled Tuesday in a physics instructor, Pat uh, Keefe's bottom floor laboratory at the community college, a team comprised of engineering, mathematics, and other technology gifted students from Astoria, Warren, and Jewel is tasked with building a new underwater robot for the Marine Archaeological Survey to find shipwrecks around the mouth of the Columbia River and the North Coast. So they're organizing construction of a remotely operated vehicle, or ROV, and this is uh, supported by George Oates Larson, head of the college underwater robotics team, and a member of the Archaeological Society. We're looking in the possibilities of having competition ROVs do these missions. We looked at that and ended up with being a little too expensive. We switched gears and said, hey, it'd be really interesting to start up an ROV program. We create a division of the ROV club that's responsible for constructing and working with an open ROV. The Archaeological Society, using part of the grant of the Calstop County Cultural Coalition, say that real fast, Purchase submersible from Open ROV and the company that manufactures inexpensive kits for educational programs. And we've talked about them before. They've got three or four models. It's an experience for sure. We've explored space. We haven't explored underwater to any remarkable degree. They said they hope they have the submersible ready by the summer for their first mission, exploring the wreckage of the Sylvia de Grasse, a, a packet ship carrying lumber that sank in Columbia River near Pier 39 in 1849. We know where it is. We're just going to go and inspect it. After that comes a challenge of taking the submersible into more open waters. Larson said the team members have signed non-disclosure agreements searching for some shipwrecks that have yet to be found. Now, why are you making them sign an NDA? So who gets that? I mean, that's a little sneaky, isn't it? Hey, put in your time, volunteer, but if we find something, you can't tell anybody. Well, you get your grant or something from the government. They're going to have their little things in there, too. Oh, yeah, I, I don't I don't. That doesn't sit well with me. The Archaeological Society met in Astoria in February and opted to adopt the Beeswax Wreck Project as their own. Scott Williams, Williams, an archaeologist with the Washington State Department of Transportation, is principal investigator of the project, which began in 2004. What's that? A completely different article. Yeah. We're just going on a little tangent. Okay. 
So good for them. I hope they learn how to build ROVs. We can use, we could use more of them. Absolutely. I'd like to see uh, the group that you're working change their venue a little bit and go into ROVs for us. <laughs> well, you know that we've got the clubs and there is, and this may be something that I need to bring up. There is, you know, Coloma's got a, has got what we're talking about for those who haven't been following. Maybe this is your first show is that my son and daughter are, are competing in first robotics, which is an international competition of uh, student-built robotics for high schoolers from ninth grade to 12th grade, which is basically your last four years of public school here in the United States. And they do a competition every year where they get six weeks to from the announcement of what the challenge is to build the robot, and then they spend about eight weeks uh, in different competitions, depending on which ones you sign up for. It's an eight-week period, and they go to state and then nationals, which is in St. Louis, Missouri this year. In our part of Michigan, in Michigan in general, Michigan is the top robotic state in the United States and in first. There were more new robotics teams last year in Michigan than there are teams outside of Michigan throughout the country and the world. So that just shows you the, the growth that we've been experiencing in Michigan and in robotics. And in our area, there's about eight or nine teams that have gone together and they've set up a group which is promoting it so that we have an opportunity with that group to maybe say, hey, in the off season, would anybody be interested in doing this? Because uh, they definitely have the skills in knowing how to do the robotics. Uh, the question would be money. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It takes uh, for a ro robotics team between entry fees, robot parts, and travel expenses, it's about $40,000 uh, per team. So you'd have, we'd have to see if there would be money or interest in doing something in off-season, but I I think an underwater ROV would be a nice project. And maybe you could do like what this, this group did, where you do just one, and you have everybody work on it, and maybe you have a challenge, or maybe you have a standing challenge where you just say a date, and anybody who has an ROV ready, you can compete on this date. Well, this next article's in the BBC, and it's protection sought for the Iona 1 historic Clyde shipwreck. The wreck of the Clyde-built paddle steamer was bought by Confederate agents during the American Civil War, and it could be given greater protection. The Iona 1 operated on a Glasgow to Highlands passage route before it was purchased for use in delivering supplies to blockaded American ports. Unfortunately, it never reached the wars. It sank in the Clyde near Gorok following a collision with another ship in 1862. How bad is that? You buy a boat, and they sink it. Now, shouldn't there be a conspiracy theory? I mean, if we're going to give... Uh, uh, tuberculosis to uh, Castro, it seems like reasonable that we could have sunk a boat. Well, the key item on that, most people didn't realize that the blockade of the southern ports during the war, you knew about that, but right. what was less known is the role that Scotland played in the aspect of that conflict because 40% of the ships were Scottish. In the south or just in general? They were built by the Scots. They were the fastest ships in the world which was called Clyde-built Mm -hmm. So the Confederacy went to Scotland to get chips to beat the the blockade. Oh, because they needed something that could be quickly around the other. Right. So it would be fast. Ah. Well, you look at that, and that it looks like a canoe with uh, side paddles on it. Looks like it would be very fast, doesn't it? I bet it would go pretty quick. Like an arrow. Because very streamlined. So that, yeah, I bet you're right. It makes sense. You know, the, they had their niche in the time. They said the wreck is described as being in good condition. Glasgow Museum has a scale model of the paddle steamer and its collections. Andy Fulton, senior de uh, designation officer for Historic Environment Scotland, says the Ina has a wonderful color history, including operating as a paddle steamer before being refurbished as a blockade runner. 
Oh, is that a that's a book on it? Well, yeah, that's a book on how they used them then. So they they go on in the article and talk about some more things they're trying to do. It said blockade running was depicted in the 1939 film Gone with the Wind when Clark Gable played fictional blockade runner Rhett Butler. Interesting ship. Yeah, yeah. And the, I like the scan they have it. So sonar image of the wreck of the Iona. They say how deep that was? They don't at all. I'm looking at another viewpoint of a actual, it's called the USS Marvelin, mm-hmm. one of the Kate and Ann. And it looks a little fatter than that one picture there and not quite so long. Um, I'll send you a, I don't know if I can send you the, the image. Well, I just send you this. It's just interesting. If nothing else, we can put it in for the, for the masses to take a look at. The show notes when I get the, the 150 of them done. <laughs> Just a tad bit behind. Uh, Patty Woman's Dive Day in 2016 aims to strengthen and grow female diver community. Patty has just announced the second annual Patty Women's Dive Day will take place Saturday, July 16th, 2016. Patty members, industry icons, and recreational divers, both male and female alike, will take part in events scheduled across the globe intending to narrow the gender gap in diving. I think that the gender gap's going to narrow just because all the male divers are going to die off. Well, I thought it was interesting when they say that females count for 35% of open water divers and 23% of divers in continuing ed. I don't see that reflected in dive clubs at all. Well, up here, I, I think for us it depends on what what gets people into diving, and I think it's even more skewed when you get up north. You know, my, my, my sister wanted to be a marine biologist, and that's what would have gotten her into it. Um, well, I do know a few women who are qualified, but they don't dive here because it's too cold. Well, that's that's a common thing. And it goes down to the, it's it's not cold, it's how you prepare. The water's cold, but you don't need to be. But again, it costs more money for a dry suit. Well, right. It depends on how passionate you're into it, and are you going to like seeing what you can see up here. Yeah. But in our club, how many female divers do we have? Two, three? Active. We've well, got just, just members in our, who in our club. We've got two active females. We've got two additional that are certified but don't dive anymore. Okay. Um, in the people who come out and dive with us who are not in the club, uh, I only have, remember two other females. Well, see, this year we've had I I can count one, two, three that have dove in the last six months. Two have dove in the river, and one was Hawaii. Actually, three in the river. Three in the river. Okay. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, there's, cause there's, there is another person who, I don't know if she's a member or not. No, she isn't. That's the one you're, you couldn't, I can't think of her name right this second. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, but that's, that's like all time high. I mean, if you, we go back four years ago, we had what one kind of active and who yeah. would only do Hawaii. Oh, I forgot her. That's four. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's why I said, yeah. 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 But you're, you're correct. We don't have that many, but it's, it's not too far off from these numbers. Thirty-five percent. Thirty-five percent. That's not thirty-five percent. Well, how many members do we got? I I only see the same six people at all the meetings. Six. We've been averaging nineteen. Nineteen. Yes. That's because I haven't been at the meetings. I mean, obviously, the guys in Alaska don't show up too often. Yeah, that's a little of a drive. Right. Well, nineteen. That's pretty good turnout then. Yeah, we've been doing pretty good on that, which is weird. We had some of the best turnouts, and the and the weather was freaking awful. Well. It kind of keeps you you're going. That's the nice thing about the dive club. Keeps it front and center. Well, then everybody wants to go eat afterwards. Yeah, that that's doesn't hurt either. It's a free meal. 
Yes. You see a lot of ladies who don't show up except on a meeting night to go out and ha- eat afterwards. Yeah. Hey, anytime you don't have to do dishes, it's a good time to go out. And this is another one that you found. Bizarre shark with humped back and black dinner-sized plate washes up in New Zealand, and it terrifies tourists. Tourists had a shock of his life after finding a terrifying deep-sea creature with bulging eyes washed up in the New Zealand beach. Martin Schnecke, the Schneck, Schnucky, from the Czech Republic, was strolling down the Rakika Beach with his uncle George Plesky when he found an enormous big-eyed thrasher shark and quickly used the opportunity to snap rare photo of him holding the creature's unusually long tail. He doesn't sound like he's too terrified to me if he's out there taking a selfie with a fish. Well, I'll take a look. When you scroll down to another picture. Oh, my so- gosh. The, <laughs> the, the first shot makes it look like it's a whale, like it's about 40 feet yes. long. The yes. second one, this is this is nothing. Maybe he is a little scared. That That's as close well, as you get to it. on that thing. Yeah, that, I think that's because it's a deep-sea animal is what happened. And did you see the picture after that, the basking shark? Yeah. It's not the same, but it almost looked like he's got legs in the back end of him. It does. Yeah, basking shark. That's an interesting shot. But, yeah, he's uh, not exactly getting close to it when he's doing that selfie. Or is that just him trying to pull it out of the water? It sounds like he's doing something with it. <laughs> okay. I didn't realize. I said the long tail is used to stun their prey, and due to their small teeth and mouth, they're considered harmless to humans. Well, that first shot sure didn't look harmless to me. Second shot, eh. Yeah. Well, I don't. Do they say what depth they typically go at? Because I'm just guessing by the look of it that it was a deep no, sea. It, it, it's odd. Especially with the with the big eyes, that would indicate also it was a low light type of creature. And I don't see anywhere in the article that it specifically says says thresher shark, but I don't know. I'm gonna look it up real quick though. I'm just curious now that you said that for depth. I've heard the term before, but I didn't realize. Well, thresher that was a U.S. submarine. That too, and I'm looking at. What I saw is a thresher shark, and this ain't it. Well, sometimes some of those, you know, call them rag magazines, uh, tend to not be entirely accurate on their stuff. It is interesting. Tail is so large, it counts for 33% of the shark's body length, all body's weight, and the tail alone may weigh up to 767 pounds. Well, maybe a bigger one, but not that one. Yeah, common depth, 1,640 feet. Yeah, so if, if you're scuba diving, you're not likely to bump into one. No, which is fine. Yeah, when they said the saucer plate's eyes, that's what made me think it's a big guy. Now, this one's from Alert Diver Online. Alert Diver is the magazine from Dan, which is a group that every diver should be a member of. That says, do you know you're breathing? CO2 sensing and rebreather diving. Unlike open circuit diver who breathes known predetermined gas mixtures, you do analysts your gas before you diving, don't you? A rebreather diver respires artificial atmosphere that changes dynamically with depth over the course of the dive. An electronic rebreather has two jobs to measure and maintain a preset level of oxygen, partial pressure of oxygen or PO2, using oxygen O2 sensors and a controller to remove the diver's exhaled carbon dioxide CO2 by means of a chemical scrubber. Until recently, there was no way to detect the presence of CO2 in a breathing loop. That is, to know if the rebreather was working properly. CO2 detection was long vexed the U.S. Navy, which spent millions of dollars over the past 50 years in search of a solution for a good reason. Hypercapnia from elevated CO2 levels in the loop is a major hazard in rebreather diving. 
It can lead to incapacitation, loss of consciousness, and death in amounts greater than 0.01 through 0.02 ATM. Which ain't a lot. No. Well, that's what it made me wonder. Wouldn't you be able to kind of control that by uh, just forcing a dilutant or more gas through the loop? If, if you knew you had it. But the problem is it's just like shallow water breathing. You're, you, you black out. You're doing fat, dumb, and happy, and then you're So it could be depending on your metabolism as how you much CO2 you generate. And if the design of the loop isn't enough to naturally keep it below that levels, then you black out. Or you have leakage. It, it, the article is pretty good because it goes in to show you where if you don't properly maintain your equipment, where you can actually induce small amounts of seepage, especially in like the butterfly valves. Oh, I see what you're saying. So instead, so if you have a, your loop isn't forcing everything through the scrubbers, yeah, then it could just be bypassing. So you could, because the scrubbers is absorbing that CO2. Right. So and something bottom, happens where that's not happening. Right. So, and the bottom line is, you know, divers, you can't, I can't taste it, can't see it. They're really bad at detecting it. So what they've been doing is working on a new sensor that could detect it and then be able to tell you, oh, by the way, your CO2 levels going up, you need to be doing something. Right, which you could do the bypass and go open circuit. Yeah, if you need, if you knew it was going to happen. Right. Otherwise, you could adjust your the dilutant. The interesting part they also go through is, and the reason I liked it, they go back through and tell you some of the techniques that are, that are in the works that sound like they're going to be really good. And I think the key item for me was they talked about how many rebreathers are out there right now and have and how many of them have technologies already put into their units to try to help you detect the CO2. And I think there was two out of 20. So when they say they can detect it, they, they, do they have a sensor? There's a sensor uh, that is commonly used, but it's sensitive to moisture. Right. Well, if I'm using it underwater, I need a way to make it better. And they're talking about film, FIL, you know, the flat film surface mm -hmm. sensors that can be made to be waterproof and humidity proof and will work better. Well, so it's not like they're going to have it done, but right now they've got a couple of different ones out there that are being used by uh, the Hollis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was trying to find the other quote that talked about yeah. uh, the other ones that didn't use it. But it's quite interesting, and the whole gist of this was, if you're a rebreather guy, this is a real good article to look at because you may not be aware of some of the nuances of, of using it and some of the modifications that you might be seeing in the near future. Yeah. Well, looking in this article, if, you, if I go further on down, they talk about AP, AP diving. They developed their own array called TempStick, which is they were able to measure the as as the the scrubber medium is, is being consumed, it heats up, and they can detect where that is because it, it, it seems to move almost like an advancing line through your, your scrubber medium. And also AP diving is one of them that they had the, the CO2 sensor. And if, if you look in there, uh, when Jim Schultz and I actually tried the AP unit, uh, we, we were sworn to secrecy at the time because it hadn't been announced. Uh, but they had the spots in the, the, the lid for those CO2 sensors because they were testing them. Uh, the challenge that you have with all the European units is that they have very strict standards with that CE regulation. So you can't. You know, it's even stricter than what we have with UL and some of the other uh, agencies and what you're able to say or, or put into your systems. What I thought was also very interesting was they were talking about that 
depend on how you pack it, the quality of the pack for your soda sorb or whatever you're using. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, many of the manufacturers who don't have this option yet say, well, all they got to do is pack their, their, their tanks really well for our specs. They had an article in here later that talked about that how fast you use your medium is variable and can be off by a factor of four times. Right. And that could be positive or negative. Well, if you're looking at it and you look at it from the negative side, you can be real conservative. Right. But if you don't, you could be really loading yourself up for a problem. Well, right, because from my understanding, and, and everybody should go and find out their own information, and this is two people talking on a podcast, but with the absorb, that's sealed from the factory. So it, it's it's from the time it's manufactured, it's slowly breaking down. And then once you open up your material, it starts the age. And then it gives in how you pack it, how you how you use it, the quality, humidity, temperature. There's all these things that play into a factor. And then that gets weighted into the rating. So that's why you have such a big swing is that they're trying to account for it to give you a reasonable understanding of how much absorption you've got there. But just in manufacturing variances and quality and how you packed it, there, there can be quite a bit of variance. Yeah. So the stick idea is a real good one as far as I'm concerned. Later down in here, it says, uh, although the technology exists, only six of the more than 20 rebreather manufacturers offer some form of CO2 protection, and only two offer both an array and a sensor. said, many don't see the need. One manufacturer told me, divers just need to learn to pack the scrubbers properly. Well, that sounds like somebody who's trying to explain why they don't have something that somebody else has. Well, the last line is interesting. Given that rebreather fatality rates have been estimated to be five to ten times higher than open circuit rates, perhaps the question is better off put to the divers. Do you want to know what you're breathing or not? Good Uh, art. Well, what this is going to tell me uh, is that when I do get to that point, I may, I'm definitely going to be looking for a system that could do as much of this as possible. And it looks like that uh, one of the units that we had tested had this in it, so... And this is from the Q1 winter 2016, so it's very current. But look how small that circuit board is, though. Oh, yeah. So they a, they have, what they do is they show a quarter, and the circuit board without that testing is not much bigger than that quarter. Let's see what else we got. Uh, defensive diving profile planning, another one from Alert Diver Online. Limited gas supply and less than stellar thermal protection once worked to cap decompression stress for a typical diver. Increased choices for gas supply and improved thermal protection enable divers to go further and longer. Dive computers have likewise expanded the freedom to explore the square profiles of the past can be replaced by complex dive profiles that are quickly tracked by these little boxes. Decompression safety may be achieved by staying within dive computer dive table limits, but decompression sickness can develop even after dives that remain within the prescribed limits. Dive computers generally work as designed. But the mathematical logarithms don't evaluate many factors that can alter the decompression risk of a given exposure. Building a modest buffer at every step of the dive process can ensure good outcomes. The article discusses the concepts, important practices, some of the pitfalls that must be overcome, and the practical strategies of defense for dive profile planning and implementation. And they I, like, I like this article because basically it talked about conceptual control. Mm-hmm. For, you know, it goes down and gives you some key words such as make sure you know the risk of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Take responsibility for your own safety. Don't allow somebody else or a device to have, you know, authority over what you're doing. 
Right. That could be as simple as, well, the dive master is with me. He'll take care of me. That doesn't hack it. They talk about understand the available tools that are available for you. If nothing else, you got a dive table and a watch. Right. You can bounce that against your computer. They said, evaluate your information critically. Don't take it on faith what you read. And look how many people look at the gauges and it bounces a little bit low, high, low, high. And they, they stay down thinking about why is this doing this as opposed to getting on the line, start going back up, right. figuring it out on the surface. Well, right. And, and the thing is, it is important that you mentioned there of, uh, you know, dive gauge and a watch because that dive computer can fail. It can leak. It can shut off. The battery can go bad. I mean, you can have a full battery at the surface. You get down there, it's cold water. Something can happen. If you don't know how long you've been down, you, you may not know where you were in your dive profile to when you should be coming up. And then also a dive computer may just hang. I mean, I haven't heard of one happening, but I went, you know, knowing what I know about computers, and especially with people using alternative uh, computers, you know, loading, you know, using their phones as dive computers, uh, you can't always count on it. So if, if the dive computer tells you something that you should know is wrong to the tables, uh, you're also, I mean, you're the one who's going to pay for it if you do it wrong. Yeah. And they go down, they say, know your risk tolerance, maintain a safety oriented, you know, state, reinforce safety messaging. And they have a really good item there that if you bend the rules a little bit, after a while, you ignore it because it's not a real rule anymore. And they talk about mission creep. You got to be careful about mission creep. You get down and it's always, well, I'm going to stay down two more minutes because I found my bottle. You know, you want to say, well, I can, you know, it's only a minute. Well, you don't do it. So pick your partners well. Right. Use your tools to defend your practice. Yeah. They're, not everybody is going to be a compatible partner for you. Right. And then it goes later into the whole article talking about the uh, controversy. Do you do your deepest dive first and then your next one's lower? And it has some really good discussion on yes and no. But it goes back to, again, what's the mission? What is your awareness levels? And what are you going to do tomorrow? Because what you do today affects tomorrow. Right. So it's a really good article, especially for people who are using their computers because they're doing deep diving all the time. And the thing that you, you said in the beginning was was know your your limitations and understand what increases your risk. Yeah. So is your circulation not as good as somebody else? Yeah, age is a big one. So age, medication, conditions. Physical physical ability. Yeah. If If you're a southern diver and you decide to come up and dive with us in the cold water, you can't go based on your history of what you've been doing at 60 feet and 70 degree water. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have a completely different experience. And we've we've said, you know, for us northern divers going in that warm water, that's dangerous. All that visibility and warmth. You can sometimes exceed your capabilities because I can see the boat on the surface. Yeah. You can see a boat on the surface? Well, I can't do if I'm touching it and I'm coming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Another one from Alert Diver is prepared to act. Oxygen will be uh, oxygen, a willingness to use it, and a fast boat save the day. And what this did is given a, uh, an example of a, a group going out to dive. They got on their site just as they were getting prepared to go diving. They got a mayday call. They answered it. Turned out to be the boat a thousand feet from them, and the person there had trouble problems getting enough air. Refused to take the handed off bottles of air to him and made a free ascent. Not a good thing for an older person or anybody. Got up no. on the surface. What do you normally do? You give them O2. They didn't have any O2. Oh, the other boat didn't? Right. They didn't have anything. So this guy scooted over. He happened to be an EMT. His buddy was an EMT. 
So they gave him, you know, put him in the Trindleberg position, gave him the O2, contacted the Coast Guard, transferred him to their boat because their boat was 25 knots faster than the other boat. The other one was a, a slower cattle boat sort of, which would do 20 knots. There's oh. a 45. Wow. So then they boogied, contacted the Coast Guard. Coast Guard escorted them in, had everything ready when they hit the Coast Guard docks, got the guy to the, to the hospital, everything worked out okay. Their point was, anytime you're doing any diving, and they were diving on a wreck 115 foot deep, always have O2 on board. Yeah. When in doubt, O2 is what you're going to do in many of these cases. And then they went back and they talked about how they've modified the, even their program and they both now keep two oxygen units on board, and they also bought a defibrillator. Those guys are doing it the right way. Yeah. We we usually have oxygen on our boats. Yes. When we're out there deep diving, we normally have – Larry has one, Ken has one, I've got my backup. I think uh, – now, is yours the one that's in Jim's boat a lot, or does he have one too? I'm not sure if Jim does or not. Mine's a standalone in the black case. Larry and them have the uh, Dan models in their in the mm-hmm. green cases. So it's it's a good thing. I I would say it's a necessity. And then the other thing is to make sure that if you have an event, to not be afraid to use it. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper to fill up an air an air oxygen tank or get a new one if it's a disposable tank than it is to uh, do a chamber ride. Yeah, it you know it's generally to me I don't understand most of the aspects. Yes, some people can have a reaction to 100% O2, but you very seldom are going to get one 100% O2. Right. And if you're talking about a diving accident, it usually is a deco thing or something similar. Yeah. The people who have the problem with the O2 is they usually have a, a predisposition to it. Uh, it's rare for if you've come up to the surface and you're on O2 to have a problem. Um, unless right. you were doing an exotic dive and breathing high oxygen as part of the dive. But that's usually in those world record attempts. It's not in your everyday, at least in your recreational diving. Yeah. And generally, though, if, if you do have that aspect, what you do is black out. But if you've got a pressure demand, it doesn't matter. They're going to breathe for you. Right. So O2, not a, I mean, it's really cheap to have that. That's cheap protection. Yeah. And then we talked about health. This one's out of the website called mensxp.com, and it says 10 fitness tips every diver should know. And what they, they're referring to is uh, – an India's pioneering scuba diving liveaboard yacht, Infinity, uh, Sunni Bakishi, has clocked 250 dives over a period of seven months, sometimes during three to four dives a day for 10 days at a time. He's been diving since 1997, something he planned to keep doing for another 25 years, and he's passionate about uh, fitness as being part of a scuba diver. So he put together the list. Uh, first one was regular weight training. He says it helps build muscle and strength while strengthening your back and abdominal muscles. Do regular crunches, squats, chest press, back extensions, other weight-bearing exercise to build up muscle and strength. Uh, and the thing I've always wondered about this, and maybe it's a question for Dan, but they always say not to stress yourself before a dive. So if you're diving as much as he is, how do you fit, fit in high-stress weight training? Well, one, you don't do high-stress weight training on your boat. No. Uh, Generally, <laughs> unless they got a real good gem on board. So I, I'm not sure it's going to be the same. And also, you don't do it every day. Even if you use the Nautilus training here at the Y, they recommend you do not do it more than every other day at the, at the, at the most. Right. Uh, for weight training, typically, and again, this is ask your trainer, but uh, a lot of times I've been, they've suggested to me, you know, if you're going every day, 
you know, Monday is upper body, Tuesday is lower body, and then you alternate it. So you're not working any particular muscle group more than every other day. Yeah. Uh, deep breathing exercises is uh, number two, improving lung function. Breathing capacity means longer dive time. Stretching your chest muscles and practicing deep breathing helps achieve this, which I think that's always good because that uh, the deep breathing also loosens stuff up if you've, you know, if, and it can also help you. If you can't take a deep breath, there's something you need to have checked out. Yeah. And as I don't know, I've, I've heard it's a Western thing, meaning Western cultures, that we tend not to breathe deeply for whatever reason. So it's a good idea just to relax and and try some deep breathing. They said uh, another one. Yoga classes. It's what? Take some yoga classes. Yoga will do it. Yeah. You, some people say yoga's for wimps, but I'm I'm not. That that's a tough class. Uh, three. Develop leg strength. All divers should give extra emphasis to leg exercise, developing muscle strength, endurance, flexibility. As dive activities place unique demands in the body, and that is true. Try and take off a fin on the dive ladder of a bro a boat. And my fear is always that Charlie horse, so it's good to be limbered up and flexible so that you can do that. And they're talking about the different exercises to do, abductors, abductors, squats, leg extensions, specific exercises for quadriceps and hamstring muscles. They recommend aerobic exercises such as walking, running, jumping rope, cycling, dancing, hiking, swimming, and sports activities. They said, work your calves and feet. While the, while diving, we are like a fish, pulling our feet and toes, flexing our feet. We have to avoid developing painful cramps in our feet and calves. Toe grabs is a simple move that can strengthen your muscles, support your arch. Practice them by grabbing your sock with your toes, lifting it off the floor, then hold and release and repeat. To better develop calf muscles, exercise such as calf raises, seated, standing, can also do the trick. Be sure to stretch afterwards. Then strong and healthy shoulders. Having healthy and strong shoulders should be critical to diving as shoulder joints is the most mobile of joints. Can you reach back and turn off that air? I do know that if I looked like this guy, I'd have to get a new dry, dry suit. Yes, <laughs> the, the photo is of uh, somebody uh, who's got uh, quite a bit more muscles than most of the divers we dive with. I, I don't know anybody other than Arnold that may look like that. Well, you got five. Well, how about six? Maintain good posture. How many, how many in the club look like him? I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> the only way I'm going to look like that or, or, or close to that is after I die, let my bones <laughs> dehydrate for a while. Uh, maintain a good posture. Good posture is always an important uh, component of fitness. It goes beyond sitting up straight. Posture is defined as your overall carriage, your body. Good posture allow you to build and maintain strength and avoid injury. Also good to get good trim buoyancy control during your dive and have 0% body fat as this young man in the article. Now, the photos in here, which are I, I kind of think are cheesy, are all stock photos. So these are not scuba divers. That we know of. Uh, they're not. I don't, I, I don't believe any of them are. Uh, <laughs> muscle stretches. Stretching all your muscles to re relax as opposed to being tight. Uh, they expand. Uh, they make it easier for your lungs to expand to reach your full capacity. And there's quite a bit of overlap in these categories. Eat and drink sensibly. They said a dive can burn as many as five to 600 calories, uh, consuming some slow-burning carbs like a banana or a whole-grain toast before your first dive. Afterwards, rehydrate with natural coconut water or sports drink like Gatorade. In general, you should pay extra attention to staying well hydrated as dehydration can increase the risk of developing decompression sickness, which is true. Hydration, I think. Notice whenever you're on the treadmill, mm -hmm. it's about 100 calories a mile unless you got a really high elevation on your treadmill. So 600 calories, 
if you if you can die for an hour and they're really burning six hundred calories, I'd go diving, guys. Yeah. Well, you, you've got other things in play. Even though you may be doing proper thermal protection, you you got to heat that that water up. So you're burning calories to keep warm, even if you don't feel cold. Also, the water is resisting you every which direction, both arms and legs. So while running, you may only be getting a you know working out your legs and maybe your arms as you're swaying. But you're diving. I I, be, I believe that. I don't know if every dive you're going to burn five to six hundred, but uh, it's good exercise. Swimming. If you can't make it out of the sea frequently enough to dive and then spend as much time you can swimming in a pool, it'll benefit your heart, lungs, and burn calories, keep you comfortable in the water, make you making diving come naturally to you. And then I the think fun- work would be the nicest if you could get there every day. Yeah. I, that's something that I'd love to do. You know, I, I work 300, 300 yards from a, a gym and a pool, so I should be doing more of that. And then mental fitness. Being mentally sound is important physical fitness. Keep your mind sharp and alert, but calm by eating healthy, nutritious foods, reading, doing puzzles, and mentally rehearsing upcoming dives, including emergency procedures as they arrive. Before every dive, relax, breathe, check yourself, your gear, your buddy, and your surroundings. So I, I agree with all these. Most of the people that were talking about fitness, when do you need it? And you're absolutely right. Most people, when they get into the water, they're comfortable. We're not talking about the occasional I fall in once a year type. Right. Like what we're doing. The biggest one is when you come up and you're in a three-foot sea and you're trying to get to your boat because they didn't put a trailing line out. And then you got to move those fins off your feet. They said that's when you suddenly get this high exertion rate that give you some cardiac cardiac issues if you are not keeping yourself in shape. Well, so let's let's track that. So you've you've come up from a dive and maybe you were or weren't expecting it to be three foot waves. But the first thing is you've got the dread coming up. So you've already got some sort of elevated pressure. Uh depending on what you do, a lot of people when they get to the surface, they want to take bigger breaths of air. So they may feel like they're over breathing the regulator. Well now you're fighting to stay above the waves. And then if you're getting on a boat, many times we don't do that with fins, so you're taking your fins off, you're managing your gear. Uh, you may be rushing because you want to get on the boat before your dive buddy or get out of the way so your dive buddy can get on. So that all adds up. So it's it's important to stay fit. That's and, and, and the other item is, no matter how tired you're getting on the back of the boat, you will never get rid of your weight until it's too late. Oh, you, you mean ditch your weight? Yeah, because you start getting rid of that extra 10, 20, 30 pounds, it sure makes staying afloat a lot easier. You don't have that all on your back. Right. And usually people do, you know, get in trouble. When you're when you're in trouble like that, you should have got rid of the weight long beforehand. Right. Well that that might be a tip of when you're you're getting to the surface. Do you really need that weight on you, no matter how you're getting out of the water? Because a lot of times there's been a few times where we'll actually take the fins off and climb up the dive ladder with weights on. But no. if you're in rough seas like this, it's worth taking the, the time to ditch the weights. Or like what we do, we normally tie off on your BC and get the damn thing off your back. Right. Well, if you're doing that, make sure you get the weight off. Because I, some of, if you've got uh, integrated weights in the BC, you can do that. But I don't have integrated weights, so I've got a weight belt. And yeah. if you get rid of the BC before you get rid of the weight belt, you could be in a different problem. No, you will be in a different problem. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I, I I think I may have done that once or twice. Well, you know, that's a good item to remember, too, that when we're out there, other than people who have the, you know, the hip weights, we should put a basket down. So if you need to get rid of it, you got, it's harder to take it off and then hand it up than it is to take it off and put it in a basket that's right there in the water with you. Yeah. And, and one thing that our boats are really good at, cause, and again, if you're new to the show, you might not hear about this, but 
the muddies we we tend to between the members have quite a few dive boats and i believe just about every boat puts uh tag lines down oh absolutely so these are lines that they're not weighted but they just hang naturally down the water they usually have a snap on the end or multiple snaps and you can hang gear off them. So sometimes if you have a stage bottle, you put that on it. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll attach the BC to it so that you can get out without, you know, carrying the BC. Uh, but make sure that the items that you may want to attach to it have a way to attach. The one thing that I don't on my dive belt currently have is an easy way to attach because it just, it's, you know, the, the regular belt weights and there's no loop. But maybe I should be putting some sort of, uh, you put an eyelet in one of your weights. Yep. But you can put a carabiner through, then you've got it. Yeah, at, at Wolf's Jim has some of those uh, repurposed weights with eyelets on them, and that would be a good one. Be, I mean, it's a you know two-pound weight with an eyelet on it, and then I could just snap it off and wouldn't have to worry about it. Yeah, because a lot of guys are taking those um, D-rings, mm-hmm. and when you loop it into your weight, you put a D-ring there. That way you don't even need an eyelet. Yeah, yeah, that'd be another good way. So that's uh, it's, a, it's a nice thing about the boats we have those, but you, you, you attach off. Or even if you get tired, if you get to the, you know, you get, you might be coming up. If you, if, if for some reason you have a problem and you're attached to that tagline, that can haul you aboard. Yeah. Well, like I said, we usually have a trailing line out just in case yep. a tagline off the backs and depending on which boat, then you got the line that goes from the stern to the aft or, you know, forward to the aft end. Mm-hmm. It goes to the anchor line. Right. So there's lots of different places you can get back up. Well, and we'll dive, I like, to, to my rule of, of seas is six inches to no waves, at least in Lake Michigan, that is flat. I mean, that's that's like ideal. And then six inches to, to two and a half, three feet is a little choppy, but manageable. You start getting above that three feet and it's diveable, but it's not pleasant. Uh, and I tend, to, and when we go in the water, we kind of check the reports of, is it three feet, three feet in building or is it three feet in falling? And it doesn't matter what you can do. It's what can the least ability of the least diver, you know. Yes. you got to look at the weakest link. Right. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Well, and then know what somebody dives. I mean, we have a lot of uh, club divers. And the new ones, it, it's going to be six, a foot a foot to a foot and a half, and we wouldn't let them get in. They, they need to have some experience and time to understand uh, what the conditions are like. Uh, also, do you get seasick? That's a that 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 plays into a fact. Uh, you know, we we've got you know two or three members who are prone to seasickness, and for them, the best thing to do is to get a foot or two under the water, which is nice when you have that that line that goes from the anchor line underneath the boat. Uh, if you can get down to that, you know, the the swells and waves seem to just be about dissipated. Well, it makes me ready for Lake Michigan diving. I'm ready to hit the river again. Yeah, I did not get a lot of Lake Michigan diving in this last year, and I'm uh, this year I want to get more in. Yeah, river river diving. I've I've done some this year. Uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't mind that, but I'm I'm kind of my measurement this year is going to be Lake Michigan. Get on some wrecks again. Yeah. And let's see. Do we have um? Oh, and then you had uh, I put this under the potentially cool scuba gear. Queenland's lifesavers trial sea bob water scooters. So these water scooters can dive up to five meters underwater. Surf lifesavers could soon have the ability to dive the ocean floor and zip through the waves of motorized water scooter. If the Queenland trial of the CBOB equipment is successful, CBOB scooters among new technologies being trialed by Surf Lifesaving Queensland, SLSQ, in the hopes of improving rescue times, they can hit speeds up to 20 kilometers and dive the five meters, spokesman said. If someone is missing, you know, 
Google's on and masks, you can go along the bottom of the ocean. You can dive down up to five meters with it. So we're definitely looking for search and rescue. Of course, scooters that are test and rescue of Nobby Beach and the Gold 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 Coast this morning. When you go to the video for this, Mm -hmm. it's really good because you look at the ocean behind them. Don't look like a lot of fun if you're just trying to run out there to save somebody. Having that scooter can really, really help you. Well, it gives you a little bit of safety because once you do find somebody, it's a, it's a float. Cause I, I think it's positively buoyant, isn't it? General, you can make them that way. Right. But if you can go down so many meters, that's not really positive. Well, a lot of that is, is I think they're doing motion. Isn't that because you're propelling yourself down why they can get down that deep? Oh. I do know that the one they're showing on the video is more of a, a, a diver per se. It takes two people because it's heavy enough. You're not going to do it by yourself to get it out there too well. But a lot of these places out in New Zealand and all, they'll have the ski, the sea scooters. They already, they have those available also. Right. It's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, the the thing is, this is this something they can really use for life saving, or is this a toy for them? I think you could use. Those are not the little things we're using. No. These are very very big, and the uh, video also goes into using drones to run out and drop a life vest to the drowning person. Yes, we've we've covered a, a few of those. Uh, programs where they had they dropped out, and I'm assuming it's some like some sort of inflatable. Right, and that's, this is also in that video. So if you went to look at that sea bob, it has the other techniques that you're using to help save lives. Excellent. So a good use. Yeah. So that does it for scuba in the news. Um, did you get any diving in this this last week? This was a dry week for me. Wow, that's like one of the first in a while. Yes, it is. Was like, it weather-related or just other conflicting? Conflicting items. I had uh, activities on the weekend. Okay. Now, did you get to Our World Underwater? I did not go to any of the shows. Uh, I know oh, Jim wow. did, Kevin did, Bob did. So probably you'll have some feedback there at the uh, club meeting coming up, mm-hmm. the 15th. Uh, but uh, I did not get to go. Okay. Well, that's too bad. I didn't get a chance to go either. I I wanted to go, and just the way everything was working, I just had too many things I had to get done. I've just been so busy recently. Uh, so we'll have to get some report from people who did go. Maybe we'll bug Jim, see if he can come on and, and fill us in. Let's see. And I haven't even been to the dive shop. I need to find an excuse to get down to the dive shop and just check to see what's going on. Well, it's getting that time of year. It has. If you haven't gotten your dive gear uh, checked out, Spring cleaning, double check all your hydros. Well, the open house for Wolf, you know, is the 19th and 20th. Yeah, 19th and 20th of March. And that means when that's done, boaters are out. Right. Yep. So I was, I was actually hoping to go diving that weekend. <laughs> my my goal is to see if we can beat our record for the earliest in Lake Michigan. <laughs> I want to say we uh, the first time I went in Lake Michigan was like the 23rd of March. So to do it, it would have to be that weekend, the 19th and 20th. Well, there's always a chance. There is. Actually, I'd be you happy. You always do a beach dive. You don't have to do a boat dive. No, that's true. I we've done a uh, yeah. I've we've done the pier dives. Yes. This, this early, uh, unfortunately, the, the river tends not to be too clean that time of the year. Visibility is highly overrated. Yeah. Well, let's see. Do you have anything to plug? Actually, I do not. Wow. Uh, I know we have ghost ships, but that's, that's a little ways down the road. Yeah, that's, isn't that in April? Uh, I was just looking at my, no, I don't know when it is, truthfully. Okay. Duh. And, and I apologize on the Mud Club site. I, I need to help you or help me 
with the menus. Uh, I redid a, we did a new theme for the site, and we have so many items on the, the menus. I spent two hours getting it to where it is, and it's probably only about a third of the way done, and that's before we get to any styling. So it was due for an upgrade. So if you're looking for bios and a few other articles, then that's what's going on. They're just, they're still there. The links still work. It's just uh, getting the menus quite right. And I'd like to thank again WRVO Radio for putting us on the air on the WRVO Radio Network. Uh, If you like diving or boating or fishing or anything in the great outdoors, they've got a program for you. They broadcast 24-7. You can uh, look for them on rvoradio.com or uh, check out their app. And this really, think of this as a plug for all the local dive shops. If you haven't been to your local dive shop, take a look because I'm sure they would love to see you about now. They're at the, they're, they're coming out of their winter funk and they could use your support right before the season gets going because it's going to go from feast, from famine to feast. So give, yes, give them a help. Let's see. It seems like there should be something else I'm, I'm plugging, but, uh, and join your dive club. Well, we've got any seniors out there, uh, on the 10th at the Buchanan Senior Center, I'll be doing a program out there on what lies beneath waters of the St. Joe Michigan River or the St. Joe River. And that's a senior center win? That's going to be on the, uh, let's say the 10th, I believe. Oh, the 10th. Yes. So that's, uh, next week. Yep. They have an afternoon program. Okay. They're starting a new one. They're doing one a month and I'm their guinea pig. Okay. Well, next week, I don't think we're going to have an episode because we've got the first competition for the robotics team in St. Joe. It's a St. Joe competition, and it starts on Thursday. So I don't think I'll be back in time. I could be, but I I better to not count on it. So the next time we'll be seeing folks maybe is on Patty's Day, St. Patty's Day. Is that the 17th? Yes, sir. Wow. Maybe we shouldn't have an episode then or do it from a bar. (laughs) Green beer and... Hot dogs, isn't that what they normally do? Well, I know the Kalamazoo, uh, well, Kalamazoo, the uh, one up by Sasses, they quite often meet in a tavern. Yeah, they're, uh, for they their, their dry their, suit, their dry suit dives. Right, right. Well, and then Chicago, they got the Green River, but I don't think anybody's scuba diving in the Green River. Yeah, not on purpose. <laughs> well, you ready for that time of the show? Yes, I am. Anxiously waiting. Okay. Well, here's one. And maybe it's one we should have done in the fall, but it, it kind of, it, it still applies now. It says, it's late fall and the Indians on a remote reservation in South Dakota asked a new chief if the coming winter was going to be cold or mild. Since he was a chief in a modern society, he had never been taught the old secrets. When he looked at the sky, he couldn't tell what the winter was going to be like. Nonetheless, he went to safe side, told his tribe that this winter was indeed going to be cold and that members of the village should collect firewoods to be prepared. But being a practical leader, after several days, he got an idea. He went to the phone booth and called the National Weather Service and asked, Is the coming winter going to be cold? It looks like this is going to be a quite a cold winter, said the meteorologist, the weather service. So the chief went back to his people, told them to collect even more firewood in order to be prepared. A week later, he called the National Weather Service again. Does it still look like it's going to be a very cold winter? Yes, said the man at the weather service. Again, it's going to be very cold winter. The chief again went to his people, ordered them to collect every scrap of firewood they could find. Two weeks later, the chief called the National Weather Service again. Are you absolutely sure this winter is going to be very cold? Absolutely, the man said. It's looking more and more like it's going to be one of the coldest winters we've ever seen. How can you be so sure, the chief asked. The weatherman replied, the Indians are collecting a shitload of firewood. (laughs) 
That's good. I like that. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, if I was the the weatherman, I wouldn't bet against the Indians. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> As a side note, did you realize, doing some research for other projects, that Native American Indians have been in this area for remnants of their civilization of 10,000 B.C.? I believe it. And that is only a couple of, you know, thousand years ago, they were hunting, not even thousands years, they were hunting what they call mammoth bisons that used to live out here. Mm-hmm. It, it's freaking amazing, especially when you go through the history of the Indians in this area and what we did to them. That's out freaking rageous. It is. Out just that, that, and that's that, that's something for another episode. But it is. Oh, it is really sad. Yes, it is. So on that note, <laughs> go out there and get wet and stay safe. Now we know third. <laughs> yes, March third, twenty sixteen. I just remember last time. Remember, you said it three times in a row and had the day wrong. That we know of. Doo, doo, doo.